You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. This series in particular has been enjoyable to me because I think that the church culture of the last two to three decades has implemented um, a little bit of an idea or an attitude that if you question God in any way, like you're a heretic, you're not allowed to do that, right? Or if you want to be a part of a church, there's some sort of spiritual preparation, some spiritual priming that you have to do beforehand. You know, you have to get your ducks in a row. You can't just show up. It's becoming difficult to come to church as we are. But the gospel is entirely opposite of that. God takes us as we are, thanks to Jesus, and transforms us from the inside out, which includes all of those deep, dark, kind of dirty parts of our lives, parts of our hearts that we don't like to talk about. A lot of those times, those bring shame. But those parts of us in the right timing are definitely things that come as a testament to God's power in our lives. But we've been successful in creating an expectation that we understand that each of us are broken and imperfect, but we don't talk about it, right? Um, We know that everybody has a struggle, but many times we're afraid that if we share ours, that we'll be looked down upon. And if we're not afraid, many times we just don't want to welcome people um, who have baggage in their lives because that would require us to have hard conversations and carry some of that burden. And we're really just comfortable where we're at without having to carry the weight of somebody else's issues. Now, in this backwards culture we've found ourselves in, we have almost entirely alienated people who are other than us, right? We don't really want to bring people alongside. We just want them to follow at a safe distance until they get to our level. But until then, we put on a happy face for Jesus and pretend that we've never had a question for God because we don't want to have our own faith questioned. But little do we know, when we're willing to bear one another burdens and also willing to share that we don't have it right all the time, we see that we're not as alone as we thought. So the thing that I love about this series is that we've been okay with stirring the pot Um, and tackling some of these questions head on. And if any of you know me, I'm definitely an instigator. I I love to stir the pot. That's one of my favorite things, make people uncomfortable. Um, So we've kind of tackled some of these questions head on, right? We did, uh, why do bad things happen? Why does God seem to hide? How do we know if we're making the correct decision that God wants me to? And finally, in this week, is it wrong to have doubts about God? Short answer, no. Right now, some of you are thinking like, awesome, got my answer. I can get out of here. But I did promise John that I would talk for at least 25 minutes. So (laughs) we're stuck here for a little bit, but we'll still try to get out early. Um, So doubt. Um, I had actually written a sermon on doubt before uh, for some middle schoolers, but I didn't think that would really translate super well. For the reason of the sermon illustration that I had used, I came up with some ridiculous story about how I got hit by a train and my legs got run over, and so I had a full hip-to-toe leg transplant. And of course, the illustration was trying to create doubt in their minds, right? And it worked for some of them. About half of them didn't buy it, right? But the other half, they're looking at me like, I've known Hunter for months. He never told me this. 
And naturally, when I tell them that I just made it up, the same ones whose brains are like melting out of their ears are like, I knew he was just kidding. I knew that didn't actually happen, acting all tough. So I didn't think that that tactic would translate very well for actual adults. Um, but I was thinking about doubt in my own life, and it's almost always a negative thing. Today, however, we're going to be looking at doubt as a positive thing and operating on the premise that doubt makes room for faith. But before we get there, let's kind of talk through some of those negative doubts that we experience. So Brooke and I were talking, and we we're trying to come up with examples. Um, and the first one she said was when she, she was a cheerleader in high school, so she would cheerlead and tumble and do gymnastics. I listened to her, I promise. Um, <laughs> So she said, you know, if, I was, if she was going to throw a stunt, if she hesitated or if she second-guessed herself, her doubt became her reality and she'd fall on her face. And so almost immediately I realized I've definitely experienced the same thing. Many of you know that I'm big into wakeboarding and surfing and skateboarding. <clears throat> and in my summers, I often work part-time at a wakeboard park in North Fort Myers as an instructor and wakeboard park operator. So at the park, we have a little saying that goes, hesitation leads to devastation, which essentially means if you don't fully commit, you're going to fail. Um, now, this isn't like 100% of the time true, but you know sometimes you just get lucky. But if you think about it, it makes sense. If you're headed towards a ramp to do a flip, and the whole time in your head you're like, I don't know if I'm going to do this. I, I really don't think I can. And you're doubting yourself that whole time. Nine times out of 10, you're going to fall. Right, your, your doubt is going to become your reality. And this makes sense because if you're doing a flip on anything, trampoline, if you're just jumping off the ground, if you can do that, that's very impressive, I cannot. Um, you have to flip your weight enough that your feet come back around so you can land, right? Now halfway through this rotation, if you get scared and you're like, uh-uh, you stop. Now, if you know anything about physics, when you are in the air, it is much easier to stop your rotation than it is to start it again. So when that doubt happens, it hits and you fall. So that's one example of doubt in our lives. And I'm sure you can apply that to many different things, not just wakeboarding and doing flips and gymnastics. But we'll call this one self-doubt. The other type of doubt we often experience is doubt towards others. <clears throat> And this one I definitely experience more than the other, mostly because I live my life as if I am invincible. Um, so I tend not to doubt myself as much as I doubt others. But this form of doubt came as an important life lesson to me. Many of you know that before I came back to Thrive, I spent almost a year in Illinois um, doing a residency at a church there. Probably about three weeks uh, before I left, my mentor told me this, and it stuck with me forever. He said, if you set your expectations low for people, they're going to meet them. And when they exceed them, you will be pleasantly surprised. Now that's a little bit cynical, right? But there's truth to it and there's wisdom to it. So if you have a big work project and someone backs out at the last minute, if you were operating with low expectations and you're expecting that, you end up with like, okay, I kind of saw that coming. Bummer, but I guess we'll just go with what we have to work with. Rather than getting angry and resentful towards that person um, because of the personal expectations that you had set upon them. Excuse me. 
Now, I'm not saying don't set standards for your employees or your friends or the people that you love, but if you expect the worst, you either get what you planned for or you get great results. And in either instance, you end up not holding such personal grudges towards people when they will ultimately fail you because we're all human and we kind of stink. So it's bound to happen. However, this doubt of others is not entirely the doubt that we experience many times with God. I've talked to many people about their perspectives of God and the Bible, and many times I get, well, I have my doubts. And so the natural response is, well, with what? And most generally, they end up saying something like, well, how can God exist with pain and suffering in the world? Or I just don't see how you can believe in something that you don't actually see. But most of the time when people are saying this, what they mean is that they want God to come to them, and they don't want to put any work into seeking him themselves. And I would say that that is not doubt at all. It's just being content with ignorance, if you ask me. If you seek after God and he actually shows up, now you're confronted um, with changing how you live or ignoring the fact that God actually exists. Right? And if we know anything about humans by nature, we do not like change. We are creatures of habit. We find a comfortable way to live. We default to that. And that, is, that makes it only logical that people don't seek after something that could potentially change them. So I would say that that is not true doubt. It's simply not caring. The real doubt that we often experience with God is trusting that he is who he says he is when we don't know all of the answers, which essentially is faith, but we're going to put that on pause and we're going to dive into some scripture real first, real quick. Um, so please go ahead and open with me in your Bible or your Bible app to John 20, 19. Um, also, I apologize. There's no sermon notes on the Bible app. Somehow John is more tech savvy than I am, and I don't even know how to do that. So I'm going to have to just be present today. Not that you're not every other week, but I'll give you guys a second to get there. So... When we think of doubt and the Bible together, who do we think of? Thomas, Thomas Doubting Thomas. So personally, I don't love the term Doubting Thomas because it seems so negative. Um, and I think Thomas was relatively reasonable in his reaction, but we'll put that off and we'll get to that in a second. So let's go ahead and start reading in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. <clears throat> when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the, the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And we, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So this happens only a few days after Jesus was crucified. Now, all of us know that Jesus came back. We know the end of that story. But at the time, the disciples had no idea what was going on. So we're going to imagine how they were feeling. Most of them, just a couple years before, had quit their jobs and left almost everything they had behind to follow this guy, Jesus, who claims he's God. And in that time that they were learning and following him, they saw him do 
a ton of crazy stuff. But they also saw him brutally murdered. Now, I think any of us would be a little bit confused here as well. I'm sure that they were expecting some huge spectacle on Golgotha that day. Instead, they see Jesus humiliated, tortured, and eventually killed. So I don't really see a scenario where they aren't confused out of their brains on this. They had just heard Jesus on multiple occasions say that he was God incarnate. Right? They saw Jesus raise people back from the dead, feed 5,000 people with practically nothing, heal the sick, walk on water, turn water into wine. They had every reason to believe that Jesus was God, and then they watch him die. And I'm sure the whole time they're thinking, he's going to do it. He's going to come back any second now. They're just feeling this anticipation, right? And then he doesn't. And a day goes by, and still nothing. And another day goes by, and nothing. And with every passing day, his followers are growing more and more doubtful. To the point that they lock themselves up in a room to hide from the authorities because they are almost certain that they are next for crucifixion by affiliation. But then Jesus shows up, and these guys go nuts. So it doesn't explicitly say how they all reacted in John, but there's a slightly more in-depth account in Luke. And this is Luke 24, 36 through 43. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that, is, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. So Jesus, <laughs> I think this is so funny. I think Jesus has a little bit of a sense of humor, because these guys are locked in this room, and he just pops up and starts talking. Right? I've, I know that I've done this a couple times to Brooke. Like, I came into her house and she was getting ready in the bathroom and I thought she heard me. So I walk around the corner and she basically jumps out of her skin, right? When you're not expecting it and somebody just starts talking, um, it is usually very frightening. I also think it's funny that anytime an angel, or in this instance, Jesus, uh, shows up somewhere, they're like, Peace be with you! It's like, okay, well, it was until you started shouting, right? So anyway, their fear quickly turns to joy because their teacher's back. But this is still joy to the point that they still don't even believe this is happening. And then in all the commotion, Jesus is like, hold on, do you guys have something to eat? Which is fair, because I guess he just had a rough couple days being in hell and stuff. He's probably hungry. But he was really just trying to prove to them that he's a real person. Right, with real skin and real bones who could really eat real food. Not just a spirit like some of them were thinking. So back to John 20, starting with verse 24, we get to Thomas. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side... I will never believe. Now, this is where I think that calling Thomas doubting Thomas is a little bit of a misnomer. First of all, all of the other disciples didn't believe it was Jesus, and they were in a room with him for a little while, and they still couldn't 
couldn't even believe it. Secondly, I don't think that Thomas was being cynical or challenging to Jesus. I think he just wanted to explore and develop his faith for himself. If we think about it, Thomas leaves the room and comes back, which he probably was not doing a lot, if I had to guess, considering they were afraid. And he comes back, and I guess it's fair to assume that his friends are maybe playing like a pretty cruel joke on him, right? His teacher who just died, and they're like, oh, yeah, we just saw Jesus. And he's like, guys, come on, that's not funny. Or, you know, Thomas, like others, just saw Jesus tortured to the point of being unrecognizable and is thinking, how does that happen to a man that is supposed to be God? How is he supposed to come back? I saw that. Now, I think that Thomas's hesitation is very reasonable in this situation. So he makes the claim that he won't believe unless he sticks his fingers in Jesus's wounds, which is gross, but Jesus delivers, right? That is a big, that's a big claim to make. Be like, I'm not going to believe this if I just see him. I want to stick my fingers in there. So we're going to keep reading with verse 26. Eight days after, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. <clears throat> then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. <clears throat> now, I'm sure that this was the icing on the cake for Thomas's faith, which is why now we get to our main point, that doubt makes room for faith. All of this to go back to my initial point that no, it is not wrong to have doubts or questions. If you know anything about Thomas, his personality is really not doubtful at all. He's actually incredibly faithful. We know that through other times in the Gospels that Thomas was a little bit of a hard shell to crack, but once he had seen proof of something, nothing is changing that. He is all in. So we see that Jesus was intentional in allowing Thomas to have a moment of extreme questioning, just so that Jesus could swoop in and annihilate that doubt and produce in him a stronger faith than ever before. Now, if we know anything about God, he's the same as he's always been, so why would he not do the same thing for us? I know that he does for me. Even in moments where I don't want to give God moments to show how faithful he is because I've decided I'm going to hold on too tightly for this life that I think I've made for myself, he corners me to show me that he really is for me. And every single time, my faith grows. One of my favorite examples of faith is chairs. Now, this has been here for a little while, and you guys are probably just full of anxiety and anxiousness wondering what this chair is for. So we're going to move away from God to something a little more simple and more comprehensible. Um, so every time you sit in a chair, you are exercising faith, right? You're exercising faith in that chair. But the first step before putting your faith in a chair is to examine it. So if I were to consider looking or to consider sitting in this chair, I look at it and I go, okay, it's got four legs. So, you know, it's structurally, it's got structural integrity. Is it big enough for me? Probably, yeah. It's got, got a flat part for my butt, 
low center of gravity, it's stable, it's even got a backrest so I can be comfortable. However, this is only a step towards faith. Assessing something and following logic in order to come to the conclusion that the chair should, in fact, support you. But you never really know until you sit in it, which is where faith happens. So if any of you have ever been in a meeting with me, you know that I maybe have a little bit too much faith in chairs because I'm, Dan knows, I'm always leaning back in my chairs on two legs. It's a really bad habit. Now some of you are thinking, I don't sit and examine chairs that closely, man. Like, would you really overanalyze everything like that? That is probably very exhausting. Yes, I do, and yes, it is. But you don't go through the criteria anymore because you guys have many years of trusting chairs under your belt, right? I'm sure if any of you saw a wobbly chair or a small one, you'd probably think twice before sitting in it. But I see you guys every Sunday. You come in here and you plop right down in your Sunday spot without thinking. You know why that is, though? It's because you've had enough experience with chairs in your life that you don't have to think twice before putting your faith in them. Nobody is ever expecting for a chair to break that they're sitting in, right? You're assuming that it is going to hold you, and then it breaks, and it's funny, and it shocks people, and whatever. So as we walk with God, these questions arise, and we think to ourselves many times, how will God make good out of this? Even sometimes to the point of thinking God never could make any good out of every situation. But then we look back down the road, and it all makes sense, right? And it is all for our good. And then the more we allow that to happen, the more opportunities God has to grow and solidify and shape our faith. We look at Thomas and we see that he was searching Jesus to see if Jesus really was who he said he was. And how did Jesus respond? Jesus went, all right, stick your hands in my wounds. Feel this for yourself. If this is going to be what, what makes you have faith and what makes you truly believe in me, go for it. Jesus had nothing to hide. Rather, he welcomes, himself, welcomes us to come to him with questions. Now, if you read any of the other Gospels or the rest of John, you see that through Jesus' life, through his ministry, he was constantly being questioned, even by his closest followers. And every time he responds with openness and compassion. He welcomes their hesitation because he knows that he is who he says he is and that they'll see that. All right, when someone has something to hide, they often become hesitant and defensive. They want to control the information you get from them so that they can control the narrative and deceive you. I also see this when uh, I kind of take, anytime somebody tells me, like, I'm really good at, eh, I usually take that with a little bit of a grain of salt, and that might be a little bit cynical or negative. But if somebody feels like they have to, like, tell you something, then there's probably some insecurity there. If, like, you didn't ask and someone's just like, oh, I'm so good at playing guitar, and they just start going off, you're like, I don't know if he really is. Like, I'm going to have to see that. You don't have to say anything if your actions vouch for your words. But Jesus is open and he controls the narrative, which, is, which, if nothing else, should prove that he is who he says he is. Now, back to the very beginning. Faith can't exist if we don't have doubts or questions. If we knew everything, faith would be worthless. 
if we had all of the answers, faith wouldn't ever be a concept, right? So many of you know that Brooke and I are gearing up to get married, and we are doing premarital counseling right now with a good friend of ours. And we're reading a book by Tim Keller um, in which he talks about the fact that marriage is faith because no matter what, you don't fully know who you are marrying. He actually uses a quote uh, where somebody else says that you are marrying a stranger, which seems kind of harsh. <laughs> Apparently it's true. I don't know yet. Um, so it makes sense, though, because we only ever know about somebody else what they are willing to share with us. We only can obtain information that other people willingly offer up. And on top of that, people change. People get divorces all the time, according to this book and other studies, because they weren't who I thought I married. Right? And it's because people change. And in a healthy marriage, you change and grow together. Supposedly, again, not speaking from experience, speaking from <laughs> expectation, I guess. It's my hope. <clears throat> but both of us are willing to put faith in one another by not only saying, even when you change, I will still love you, but we are showing faith by saying, even when I change, I have faith that you will still love me. And Jesus does the same thing with us. He loves us as we are. He loves us when we are living lives in contrast to the gospel. But he rejoices in our return. He loves us when we question him. And he gives us openness and allows us to pick and prod and dig around as much as we need to in order for us to discover that he has nothing to hide and he is who he says he is. And our faith comes as saying, Lord, even when I'm unfaithful, I believe that you will remain faithful. Jesus allows us to have questions because doubt makes room for faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, um, that you take us how we are and transform us from the inside out. Thank you that we can come together as broken individuals and be part of the body of the church which you love. Thank you for doubt, Lord. Thank you for questions. Thank you for the ability to use logic and explore. And thank you for welcoming the questions and the doubts that we come with. <clears throat> you have nothing to hide. You're the Alpha and the Omega. I pray that you would continue to make room in our lives for our faith in you to grow. Allow us as united people to pursue you and love others in that pursuit. Thank you for what you did on the cross, Lord, and allow us to be grateful for the love that you bring, which keeps us from an eternity apart from you. Amen.